0: To me, wealth is time in in many respects. And, And how do you want to spend your time? And different people will have different answers for that, I'm sure. For me, the opportunity and blessing to be able to spend time with people I love is priceless. So being able to, you know, work with my husband, being able to have our children close at hand so that they know what we do and and it's not some big mystery to them and that we're able to help them with their homework and that we have family dinners. And, you know, all of these things um, provide me with the feeling that I am very lucky and that is really, that, you know, that is That is being really rich.
1: Welcome to Bulls, Bears and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm your host, James Vermillion, owner of Vermillion Private Wealth, and I'm super excited today to offer up an extra boozy episode. I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Sonnet Berniker-Hart, co-founder of Koval Distillery up in Chicago, Illinois, and she shared her journey from academia to distilling, including some really creative and cool ways her and her husband, Robert, financed the massive undertaking of building a distillery. She's super intelligent, and she was kind enough to walk me through a tasting of three Koval Whiskies, each of which was very unique and incredibly delicious. So let's go ahead and get straight into it. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I've been intrigued with your brand for quite some time now. I think I'm really bad with time. My wife makes fun <laughs> of me all the time. I, it was, I think like two or three years ago, she would probably say it was five years ago. I don't know. <laughs> but she bought me a bottle of your bourbon for Christmas. I think she was really attracted to the organic labeling and that sort of thing. I I was in the bourbon business at the time, so I was drinking everything I could get my hands on. Um, and I really thought it was a unique product and an interesting story. And I've kind of learned more about you and seen you guys more and more since then. Yeah, I think you have a really cool story. And I'm, I'm glad you're here to talk about your products, number one. But also your journey, because I think that's going to be an interesting story to hear for for all of the guests. So I've got to admit, I'm kind of chomping at the bit here. So why don't we do this? Why don't you kind of start us off with a tasting? And as we're kind of tasting the first one a little bit, why don't you just do a quick introduction to Koval and uh, tell us a little bit about who you guys are and what you stand for and your products?
0: Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me, by the way. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I'm going to start off a little tasting to get right to the point uh, with our rye, which is our single barrel rye. It is 40% alcohol by volume. Okay. It is also 100% rye. So we're not using any malted barley to crack the starches. This is really, truly all rye. (laughs) So we can go right into that. I I really love the nose of our rye. Yeah,
1: it's very delicate.
0: Floral. I I think it's floral.
1: Yes, very much so. And some honey. I get a lot of honey.
0: Yeah. Actually, I I get honey too. But, you know, rye is an interesting one because this is one of the uh, first whiskeys that we started working on, our rye whiskeys. In fact, we started with a white rye um, and when we began our business in 2008, where uh, my husband and I uh, decided to switch our careers. I was a professor. He was the deputy press secretary for the Austrian embassy. We were at a juncture in our lives where we were trying to decide if we wanted to literally settle down and buy a home um, in the DC area where we were at the time, or have a different sort of life experience uh, that would be guided by other things aside from you know, where our careers had gotten us to at that point, or all of our education up to that point. And we decided that instead of settling down, we would take what was a down payment that we'd saved for a home, which was $30,000, and invest that into a business that we would, uh, you know, create in Chicago, and uh, I'm from Chicago. I've always wanted to come back to Chicago. <laughs> I, I couldn't find ruby slippers, but whiskey became the solution. So quite literally. <laughs> so we ended up uh, deciding to start a distillery in Chicago. And, uh, you know, my the reason why we decided to go for a distillery is Robert comes from three generations of distillers in Austria. Uh, they would make all kinds of brandies, uh, fruit, fruit uh fruit beers um they would make liqueurs cordials you name it, uh, but they also would make a Roggen, which is in German it's it's a rye but to them it was it's just a white rye spirit so okay. this was something you know that he'd already had experience with and uh, and then we decided to bring that to Chicago to start the first distillery in Chicago since the mid1800s so that was uh you know it was it was a really, a big life change for us, but it was in a direction that got us what we wanted out of life, which was really to work together, to do something we could be proud of, to honor family heritage and traditions, and, you know, to be close to family, uh, which, you know, I feel is something that, that isn't always a priority, uh, for our society. I mean, maybe 200 years ago it used to be, and, and maybe it is a little more now than it, than it was when we decided to make this change. Right. But you know, it's like people go away to college and then they, they, they work somewhere else. And, and, you know, everything is sort of pushing them sometimes away from family. And we wanted to just change the course and, Go towards family, and we're really glad we did. And really, everything we do is very much uh, inspired by just being a family business and and working together and being inspired by each other and our family and our family's history.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's really cool on so many levels because you guys made a decision to put your family first ahead of maybe your career, you know, aspirations or or the the route that your mm-hmm. backgrounds, your education kind of led you and i'm sure that was a very difficult decision to make because everything you're told throughout your entire life throughout you know being educated is you're preparing for this so to kind of abandon that was probably really difficult and especially going into an industry that you probably didn't know a ton about it sounds like robert and his family have some experience but not a whole lot you guys went into that um into chicago which was certainly not a whiskey Mm -hmm. Area at the time, you've got a lot of cool prohibition uh, history in Chicago, but um, which I'm sure you had to deal with a, a little bit, right? Um, right. <laughs> but I just think that's a really neat journey. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I just that it's such a cool journey, and I think when you're motivated by family and when you're motivated um, by things maybe other than money, sometimes you can actually find the most financial success. Yeah, that way. Um, so, yeah, tell us a little bit more about coming to Chicago. And, what that was like, just getting Cobalt up and running um, from nothing.
0: Sure. And and really it was uh, from nothing. I mean, as I said, we had $30,000. And so, you know, that (laughs) anyone in the liquor business, you know, there's always that saying, you know, how do you make money in the liquor industry? Well, you have to have a lot of money, you know, in order to make it. Right. Um, We didn't. And so for us, you know, we, we started with, you know, what was a down payment on a home, as I said, we moved in to my parents' home, into my brother's, you know, old bedroom with our brand new baby and invested every single penny we had into the business. And then also, um, did something which I would not recommend to anybody which is <laughs> at the time there were all these offers on credit cards for 0% financing for a year so we said okay this will be much faster than getting an SBA loan <laughs> so we just charged up the credit cards then transferred the balances and charged up more and transferred the balances and then we had free money but of course it was <laughs> only for you know a year and then it would go to 26% so i will say it was free money, but it was very motivating free money because if we hadn't paid those credit cards, I imagine
1: it was.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So we had to really kick it into gear uh, or we would have gone into debt very, very quickly. And so, you know, some of the things that we did was, um, you know, really work together to figure out, well, how are we going to pay off all of our credit cards and how, you know, how are we going to get this business going? So there was really a lot going on at once. And I would say, you know, to sort of parse it out a bit with regard to the, the challenges of financing the whole operation, we had to really think about, well, how are we going to do this? Because we weren't going to be able to sell enough product right away to pay it all off. That just, mm-hmm. it was not going to happen. And so, and this was also very early days for craft distilleries. Keep in mind, you know, when you told someone you're starting a distillery, they're like in your bathtub, you know, it just (laughs) wasn't, there was no concept, you know, of a smaller scale distillery, you know, in the minds of people at that time, we were one of the first, you know, 25 DSPs in the entire United States. Right. You know, I mean, that's shocking,
1: they're probably twenty five a day now being produced.
0: Exactly. I mean, now we're we're closer. We're we're on the other side of three thousand. I think, but you know, at the time, there really weren't many distilleries at all in the entire United States. Right. So there were a number of things we had to deal with, but with regard to the financing part of it, instead of getting investors, instead of uh, you know getting loans, what we decided to do was uh, use our own you know, intellectual capital, so to speak, in every way we possibly could. So we thought about, okay, what are our skill sets? What can we do to make money? And what can we do to make money in a model that that allows us to remain within the industry itself? So to create sort of a vertical business model. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we decided to do was obviously we needed more equipment. We needed to pay for a very expensive still. And so it started with us trying to figure out ways to get discounts on things. You know, we wanted a deal, but, you know, nothing, there, there are no free deals really. Right. So what we started doing was offering value to our partners and to those that we were looking to gain equipment from or uh, information from, or whatever it was, we wanted to provide them with value. So it, the equipment companies, for example, they, they didn't have websites in English. So it started very simply as, you know, let us translate your website because we're both fluent in German. So we, we started translating websites. We started then, you know, offering whatever sort of assistance we could in helping these companies break into the American market. Let us be your manufacturer's representative. So we really started creating these relationships. And in so doing, we really forged relationships that have been long lasting and have grown and developed in really wonderful and beautiful ways that have also provided us with a lot of information about the industry and particularly the hardware that's required, even the software. I mean, we're doing automation and programming uh, to make sure that the stills have a level of automation so that smaller scale distillers don't need to fly blind while they're distilling, that they can see what's happening because of an intricate uh, set of sensors that we've now figured out how to engineer and put into these stills so that they can monitor flow rate and temperature and ambient temperature and all of these things that you would imagine a very, very large industrial distillery would have, but on a craft scale, like to, to make it possible for craft distilleries to have that same level of science and precision. Um, so these were all things that we were doing really just to help us get you know, discounts or um, to get some money so that we could pay off these credit cards. Uh, And another thing was, is that as you know, when we started this, we were the first distillery in Chicago, as I said, since the mid 1800s. And with that, you know, there are great things about being first. And then there are really difficult things about being first. Right. And so there were a lot of laws that really needed to be changed. And so while we're starting all this, while we're trying to, you know, uh, finance the whole operation, while we're working, you know, doing other side gigs all the, all along, um, I was also uh, trying to change the laws. So I had to go to Springfield, Illinois, a number of times, lobby,
1: That sounds fun. Oh, it was really
0: fun. You know what they say? They say uh, there are two things you never want to see being made. It is sausage and legislation.
1: I would rather see the sausage, to be honest with you.
0: Oh, believe me. It was was (laughs) quite... Quite eye opening, Uh, you know, and this is Illinois we're talking about. So (laughs) you can imagine that was some serious sausage being made. No, so
1: I believe. it. Oh, yeah.
0: So but, you know, so I was trying to get these laws changed and I actually did manage to get the first craft distillers bill passed that allowed us to have uh, a different license category, allowed us to do tours, tastings, uh, retail on site. none of those things were allowed. And those things are really essential for craft distilleries so that they can reach out to their fans or community. people can find out what they're doing, what they're doing differently. Um, you know because it's you know there's there's not a lot of marketing, you know, funds that small brands have. You know, to be able to, sure. to get the word out. So one needs to have these opportunities for personal interaction that just weren't available when we started. Right. And so that was something that we were working on in the very beginning as well. And so all of these things we were creating sort of a financial infrastructure for ourselves. We were creating a legal framework and infrastructure for ourselves, uh, all at the same time. And. In addition to that, you know, we started noticing other ways to finance, not just in, uh, you know, working with these other companies that we wanted to get equipment from, but, uh, you know, we started getting phone calls all the time from people who had read about us or said, Oh, I saw the article about you in the tribune. I would love to start a distillery. You know, my family, we've been making, you know, apple brandy in our backyard for years. And I'm like, you don't want to say that. To
1: <laughs> Probably um, should avoid that reason. little piece of information.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't want to tell that to everybody <laughs> you meet. Um, so, you know, they would say, well, I, I really want to go legit or I want to do this for real can you tell me how? And, and, you know, whenever anyone called the distillery at that time, they would get my cell phone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd be talking to people and I would, you know, I was formerly a professor, so I I love educating. So I I'd be talking to them and I'd be nursing and I'd be like, you know, you know, distilling or do you know, all these things. I'd be getting like a crick in my neck with holding the phone. (laughs) And it got to the point where we had so many people calling and asking us how to do it. And how to get started and where to get equipment or where are we sourcing our grain or what, you know, all sorts of little questions that it got to, to the point where we just could not talk to everybody for two hours, you know, every day right. without, you know, it interrupting our own work. So we started saying, come to our workshop. And so then we created a, a workshop. We were one of the really very first ones to to do that. We uh, over the years now we've educated over three thousand five hundred people in how to start a distillery. We had we then ultimately set up an entire consulting company called Cota Distilling Technologies, where we offer turnkey, uh, you know, operations for people. We've set up over two hundred distilleries from scratch and you know got them up and running. That's all over the world, including a very large rum distillery in Uganda, the first distillery in Jerusalem, you know, distilleries in in the close to where there are always Northern lights, always in, you know, in Finland. Um, That is so cool. Yeah. And all over the world, all over the U S Canada, you name it. So it really was a wonderful experience for us because not only Were we able to grow our business organically without needing to hand over control to uh, other financial investors or to um, sell in some way so that we could then scale? We were able to really maintain complete control, but at the same time, it was wonderful fun and also, we were able to get such a good overview of what everyone was doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good so, uh, research there.
0: Yes, we gained a lot of experience. And, you know, in addition to all the distillers we set up, we've also done tons of consulting, white labeling for brands, large and small, um, you know, and and all of that really allowed us to uh, have a really, um, you know, wonderful way to grow our business. and and, and also very unconventional way, I suppose, because it it really was a lot of work. It was as if we had like five different jobs at once, Right. but it it paid off in the end.
1: Well, you brought up a couple of really interesting points. First off, I love the phrase, what what would you say? Intellectual capital. Yes. People often sell themselves short and they forget that they forget what they know isn't something necessarily that everyone else knows. Right. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of clients and, and, they're looking for ways either to make more money or spend less or whatever. And sometimes you just have to point out the obvious, like what are you good at? And and are you are you putting yourself out there to take advantage of that? Right. So I think that's a really valuable lesson that what you know, your experiences and your knowledge are valuable. There is monetary value in what you have done in the past, what you know, and in your case, you know, understanding the laws, getting the laws changed. You know, those laws kept people out of the business. You came in, worked to get them changed, and you were automatic. You were the expert because right. no one else had been had done it. So you kind of created a little moat for your business. It's really cool. I think that's that's so impressive.
0: Well, it's it's very sweet. It was it was a lot of hard work, but but what you brought up is also I think very important is that we did it ourselves. I think that another sort of. Uh, you know, it's fine for people to get help always, for sure and and you know, good help is is very valuable. That being said, we couldn't afford any help, good or otherwise. So it forced us to really, learn it all. Like I was the one lobbying. I I couldn't hire a lobbyist. I was the one figuring out how to get the laws changed. I was the one figuring out how to work with the city of Chicago to make it possible to do what I want to do. I was the one, you know, running around um, you know, helping other people get their businesses started and answering—they're doing the work for them. You know, they don't want to—they didn't want to figure out how to submit their colas. You know, so I'm submitting their colas, or I've—you know—so it's it's just even in doing the work, you have a valuable, you know, skill set. Absolutely. You know,
1: and that that brings me to another thing. And as a financial advisor and an investment manager so many other people in this business they cringe when they hear someone talk about you know you talking about starting your business on with with the credit cards with the zero interest credit cards and and things like that but here's what i've learned when people bet on themselves there's a very high probability of success so i'm not as a financial advisor i don't get in the way of people because um a lot of times people are in the way of themselves they don't need anyone else in the way. So if mm-hmm. now, don't get me wrong, if someone's getting ready to do something totally crazy in their client of mine, I will <laughs> let them know that I think it's crazy for, for whatever that's worth. But, um, right. you know, desperation, you mentioned when those those uh, credit cards, when the interest starts, when it kicks on after that year, desperation can can make people do some incredibly impressive things and you put yourself in a position (laughs) to have to make it work. It had to work. There was no option in your mind that we have to get this done and figure something out. It forced you to be creative. It forced you to use your, your experiences, Mm -hmm. your background, your, um, knowledge of the German language, um, and those things. And it, and it forced you to create a brand that now I'm sure is is growing. And, and, and you've got these other aspects of that business that, that you can vertically integrate. And I think that's, um, Just a really cool lesson for people that, you know, not to say there's any one way to do it, but um, betting on yourself, there's a, there's a high probability um, of a good outcome. And a lot of people sell themselves short.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's very true. And I think that, you know, sometimes people are nervous about doing the work, but once they, once they start doing it, they realize, actually, I can do this, or actually this is not, you know... Um, so difficult that I can't, you know, read through it all and figure it out, you know? And I feel that, you know, that's when you really are able to learn a great deal and add value, you know, to what you're doing because you're really, you're just, you're just going for it, which I think has been very, very helpful. Yeah. To everything that we've done.
1: Totally agree. Well, should we move uh, to the next whiskey here? I'm uh, getting thirsty.
0: Sure. Let's go from the rye to the, you know, I wonder, should we do bourbon or four grain?
1: Dealer's choice.
0: I know it's crazy. All right, let's do the bourbon. I've got my little baby one right here. So, all right, so we'll do the bourbon.
1: That's what I picked up actually, the three pack. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. That's a really,
1: really nice presentation and uh, just really cool for something like this
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's fun to try three different expressions you know of a distillery so what's fun what's fun about the bourbon is that it is a mash bill of corn and millet so millet is not one of your usual suspects no it is not whiskey (laughs) but for us millet is very important uh and it in it really speaks a little bit about the nature of our distillery in that when we left our careers to do all of this and started distillery we wanted to make sure that we were not necessarily reinventing the wheel there are fabulous distilleries as you know you come from a place where there's many many fabulous distilleries yes there are and we wanted to be able to um try and do something that 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 was really ours you know in some way and we we thought about well what would that Look like or taste like, rather? What would that be? And so we thought of two different ways of, you know, creating our own identity in this American whiskey world. And so one of the ways was in using alternative grains. Because uh, when we started this, there weren't really a lot of distilleries. I mean, there were some that were using interesting alternative grains, but um, in general, there weren't a lot of distilleries um, making, you know, mainline products. Um, with grains such as millet. And so we decided that we would use alternative grains in in our whiskeys. So our millet features prominently in our bourbon. We also make a 100% millet. We make a 100% oat whiskey. And our four grain, which we'll try next, has oat, malted barley, rye, and wheat in it. So using these sort of fun different grains became uh, an element of our identity and, and what we wanted to bring to the market. But the other thing that we wanted to do to sort of differentiate ourselves as a distillery was, and this is sort of what I was talking about before in honoring family traditions, is that Robert comes from, as I said, a family of distillers, but it's important to, to note that they're brandy distillers. And when you're making a brandy, it's very different sort of distilling process uh, than if you were making a whiskey, at least in the traditional American whiskey sense. Because mm-hmm. when you make a brandy, brandy distillers are usually, they're not usually very large in in Europe or in Austria or in France. They're usually smaller distilleries, like a craft distillery size. And they they would never use anything but the heart cut of the distillate. So really the filet of what comes off the still, the pure ethanol portion of the distillate. Because a lot of the fruit brandies that are made in Europe are unaged. So if you have some of those long ends in it, uh, a lot of the fusel oils it's not considered, you know, uh, the best way to make a brandy. So this is the tradition that Robert grew up in and he grew up making brandies with his family. So they would never use the tails. We decided that one of the things that we would also have to differentiate ourselves from other distilleries uh, would be to do the same thing for grain. So we would, apply this brandy approach of using only the heart cut and not use any of the tails, uh, for our whiskeys. Now I'm not making a value judgment with regard to whiskeys using tails and whiskeys can be delicious. It's, it's wonderful. Um, and it can create oily elements to it. Um, but it's, it's just, it's a different style not to right. It creates a different, type of whiskey in a way that does not taste like whiskeys that um, have tails in them. Uh, And, and it also allows us to use the barrel, not necessarily to mellow tails, which they do and do a good job doing that, but to really only use the barrels for flavor and natural color and aroma, as opposed to like sort of the filtering components of it, because that's unnecessary because there's nothing that goes in there that needs to have sort of the flavors mellowed because, you know, if you drink tails by themselves, I don't know if you've had tails by themselves, but they kind of taste and
1: No, I don't think I have.
0: Yeah. They sort of taste and smell like a wet dog, like by themselves. Just
1: don't think I will then.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) there's, you know, they're not bad for you in the same sense that the heads are, which, you know, that's like nail polish remover essentially. And it's sort of just, you know, um, And it's horribly poisonous tails are not, they just have like a different chemical components to them. Uh, and they, they work really well once they're aged, but we decided to take this brandy approach, um, and have a very clean, bright whiskey because as a result, right. So one that just is, it just has a different composition, actually just even chemically, you know, because of the lack of tails. Um, in them, right. So that was another way we wanted to differentiate ourselves. I will say that it's now sort of become a new school of American whiskey because if you look at lots of craft distilleries' websites, they talk about using only the hard cut of the distillate, and I, you know, I, I, I love to think that we had something to do with that, you know, and educating so many people who went on to start distilleries and that they heard about our approach because we shared everything. We didn't necessarily hold anything back. Um, so, uh, it was something that we taught and, uh, sort of almost promoted as a, as a way to differentiate oneself, uh, as a brand. So that's the bourbon. Um, one other thing about the bourbon that's fun is that millet is also a rotation crop. And in that we, we care about being organic, uh, you know, it's not just about, thinking organic grains are good it's it's really about the whole practice of organic farming and being benevolent to the land and not using pesticides and one of the things that's really important for farmers in general is to be able to have a rotation crop and it's nice when you know you have uh, somebody that wants to buy it all you yeah, know for sure. we're buying all this millet so it's 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 nice it it's a win-win for everybody
1: So now I've heard of millet but it's not something and not just in whiskey, I mean, you just don't hear of it being used too often here in the United States that I'm aware of. Where predominantly mm-hmm. is millet grown? Is it is it easy to grow and what other uses for it? Um, it's obviously not an important dietary staple here. So what, what else do people use millet for?
0: Well, it's a major dietary staple in places such as Nepal, you know, um, other parts of the world. Right. It's, it's key. And in fact, all of the whiskey made in that you know, in Nepal, uh, usually is, is from a base made out of millet. Um, and Roxy, it's a kind of spirit that's made out of millet. Okay. Uh, it's in Russia and in other parts of, of Asia, millet is used, you know, all the time as sort of like a, ser- a popular cereal, breakfast cereal, sort of like we right. use oatmeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, in the United States, unfortunately, it does not have the same popularity. Um, as a sort of cereal that that we eat for breakfast or or otherwise we use it in gluten-free breads uh, so because it's a gluten-free grain okay so sometimes it appears in gluten-free items uh, in in the grocery store breads or crackers or things of that sort uh, but you know you've probably also seen it as bird seed it's those little tiny beads
1: okay there you go yeah yeah
0: so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fun grain.
1: Well, I'm telling you, I, I'm loving this bourbon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm, I'm loving this. It's the, the nose is, is, is very different. There's, um, I get a lot of kind of buttery, uh, uh yeah. notes there on the, on the front end, but there's something that, that honestly is just different. And I wonder if that's not some of the millet that I'm not necessarily used to kind of coming through.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: And it's definitely pleasant. It's just, it's a note that I wouldn't necessarily identify.
0: Absolutely. I mean, millet really changes the whole nature of this bourbon. And you know, bourbon is a is a kind of whiskey that you know some people love or some people don't really particularly like it. They like other kinds of whiskey, and I, I feel it's bourbon can sometimes be polarizing. Whereas I feel like this bourbon is so different from what you expect. You know, even though it is 100% a bourbon. I mean, there's there's no arguing with. With it. it, it's right. It meets all the requirements. It's just very different in nature because of the millet.
1: Well, I would say this: it's got a, um, a, a kind of a special earthiness that I don't usually yeah. get. Um, and again, I guess that goes back to the millet. I'm not aware of any other bourbons that I've had. No, having millet in the mash bill, or or certainly featuring prominently. So yeah. that's that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't think there are others,
1: and I don't think I knew that the first time I tried it.
0: Right. Yeah. No. It's it's very unique. So, you know, we wanted Chicago to have its own, you know, bourbon with its own identity. You know.
1: Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and I
1: pick up. What else do I get here? I'm getting some, uh, some brown sugar. Yeah, for definitely. sure. Absolutely. And maybe even some, some red fruit of some sort. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a nice balance of of um, earthiness and still getting the sweetness from that corn. Mm-hmm. Are you right at about 50, just over 50% corn? Or are you guys higher than that?
0: Yeah, it's, it's 51% corn. Okay. So it's really, there's a lot of millet in it.
1: Very interesting. It's very good.
0: Yeah. Thanks. It's uh, you know, what's also fun about it is it's overproof. So it's 47% alcohol by volume, but I don't think that it, it strikes one as having that high of an alcohol content. And I think that that's because of our use of only the heart cut. It's very clean, even though it's a uh, higher proof.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Certainly.
0: It's fun to sip.
1: It's very good. Well, let's, um, I'm, I'm actually really excited to shift over um, we'll go into the four grain, and then we'll we'll kind of get back to the to the conversation. Sure, but yeah, I'm excited to try the four grain.
0: Absolutely, let's do the four grain. Yeah, so the four grain is uh, it's it's a fun one. So we mash all of the grains together. It's uh, a mixed mash bill of oat, malted barley, rye, and wheat. But I would say it's very heavy on the oat and the malted barley, with very like much you know, a smaller percentage of the rye and the wheat. It is, uh, it's also overproof. So this is also 47% alcohol by volume. And, you know, it's uh, also distilled to just the heart cut, you know, on the back of all of our bottles, we list the grains. So we, we try and be as transparent as possible so that people know what it is that, you know, they're, they're drinking so this this it lists the different grains on it um but yeah it's a, it, this is a fun one we wanted to create a complex whiskey right we do a lot of individual single grain whiskeys you know as i said our rye is 100% our oat is 100% our millet is 100% and so we wanted to try and create a four grain that had a different level of complexity to it that had some smokiness from the malted barley uh that was almost sort of like a bridge between those that like American whiskeys, but also like to have Scotch whiskeys as well, sort of with with sort of a complex uh, flavor profile. You know, it's not that you need an armchair and a cigar to drink this. I think it's, <laughs> you could easily drink this with some cake and cookies, but it's uh, it's it's definitely got a lot going on.
1: Yeah, I'll take the uh, armchair and cigar for sure, but
0: <laughs> I uh
1: you know what what's interesting, I definitely get almost a peatiness um that you might mm-hmm. find in a not an overly peated scotch, but I definitely do get something similar to that. I definitely mm-hmm. get the oak or I mean the uh, the oats, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I almost get on the nose, and this might sound really weird, some bananas.
0: Mm-hmm. Or
1: like a creamy oh, banana yeah, from the dessert. Beach. Yeah.
0: Yeah. From the wheat. We also on occasion make a one hundred percent wheat whiskey and and you definitely get that from the one hundred percent wheat whiskey that we make, uh, although it's very limited. Uh but what's what I like also about this is it has a creaminess to the mouthfeel.
1: Yeah. It definitely And that's does. also
0: because of the oat. Yeah, the oat the oat really lends sort of a creamy mouthfeel to the whiskey and i love it that there's a lot of concentrated flavor in the grain, and you know it's a, it's got a nice high proof to it so if you want to have it with a cube of ice you can but i i mean i like things just room temperature just sipping yeah i'm sitting and here, here a, sipping
1: all of these uh you know neat um uh, just out of a, a glencairn glass and right. i will say this is really really good and I'm also picking up some maple syrup. It's very it's a this was good to go last. It's very dessert like in a lot of ways. Yeah. Although there's still some spicy and smokiness to it as well. Yeah,
0: right. I get some candied orange peel a little bit in it. Um uh, but it's yeah, it's a it's our most I would say our most sort of complex whiskey for those that want want to like sort of feel it and like
1: Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean and even on this glass, I mean, it's just like clinging yeah. to the side of the glass. So there's definitely kind of a, a thick kind of quality to it, right? It really lingers. Nice. I
0: mean, I'm still tasting it, and I, 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 think I had a sip like a minute ago. <laughs> you know, it's like really,
1: I can't stop sipping. Yeah, it's really nice.
0: <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so I mean, it's it's a fun one. It really is. So I mean, it's it's really it's one of the things that's nice about all of our whiskeys and it doesn't matter which one is that we really try and have a good level of consistency so that the identity of how we distill is apparent regardless you know so you're they're all going to be very clean very bright whiskies Um, and also the fact that they're single barrel as i said before you know we're very interested in technology uh, and that's something that we have helped many of our Uh, clients uh, in consulting with, but also ourselves certainly too, is that, you know, we want to maintain a level of consistency with all of our distillations so that what is coming off the still is not dramatically different than the last time we distilled a four grain. So even though they all go into single barrels, we really try and make sure that they are as absolutely consistent as possible. Right. And, and that matters a lot. So for example, when we're distilling, if there's ever a slight variation for whatever reason in the flow rate, uh, or in the temperature, we can adjust it immediately. We'll get an alert, you know, even if somebody's not standing right there watching it, you know, we get alerts everywhere on our phones, on our iPads, on our computers, and it can be immediately adjusted so that everything stays consistent. And that Provides us with also a consistent product.
1: Well, and traditionally with a we, with a single barrel, the the idea of the single barrel and the maybe some of the inconsistency of the, of the product it's a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, right. You could get a really great barrel that you love, and you've got that bottle, and then you go back to the store and you get the same exact bourbon, different barrel, different mm-hmm. bottle, and and it's not as good. So, right. Trying to get that consistency you want it, um, but you probably still have enough variation to kind of keep it exciting. And maybe someone finds a barrel that they were particularly happy with. So I think that's Mm -hmm. the cool thing about single barrel, but certainly you don't want bad barrels. You don't want, you know, you don't want to put out bad product that's not consistent.
0: Oh yeah. Never, never. Yeah. And we really try and make them as absolutely consistent as possible. I mean, we taste everything too. And if, if it varies too much from the flavor profile and it can vary in a really, you know, wow, this is really interesting and this is fabulous. But if it doesn't taste sort of like what we go for, you know, for our bourbon, it will get pulled right for a special project or a, you know, a special barrel program. We do a lot of barrel programs. And so those really fun ones that are fabulous in their own way, but may you know, vary a little bit more than we would want from the flavor profile that we want people to sort of expect and be really excited to have over and over again, um, that will get pulled and become something different or like a special barrel program.
1: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's certainly a demand right now in the Mm -hmm. business for barrel picks. So um, taking Mm -hmm. advantage of that with product that maybe doesn't quite fit your profile that you want for, you know, your bourbon or your rye or your four grain. Right. If it fits what they're looking for, their group or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. then all the better. Everyone's happy.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it ends up being like a real win-win because, you know, for example, if there's like an incredibly hot, you know, summer mm-hmm. and it affects, you know, the barrels and then we get a, we get uh, we pull a barrel and it's just extra smoky. You know, that, I mean, it tastes great. I'm like, oh, this is really good. But it's just, it might not be the exact flavor profile that we want for something else. So people have a lot of fun with our barrel picks and, and, you know, the ways in which it can vary just a little bit and, and, and create like a, a fun, um, special pick.
1: Yeah. Sounds like I might need to, uh, gather the troops and head up to Chicago once the snow melts.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of fun stuff.
1: <laughs> well, cool. Um, let's move on. I want to talk. I ask everyone that I have on a couple questions. Sure. And I think we can get an idea of of the answer that you'll have for this first one. But I think it's important. It's it's a question I make sure that I ask myself, and that I, I don't mm-hmm. deviate too far uh, from the answer I I know I should have. But yeah, when you think about wealth what does that mean to you a lot of people you know that's a money thing and maybe it's a money money thing for you but what does that mean
0: i mean to me wealth is time and in, in many respects and and how do you want to spend your time and different people will have different answers for that i'm sure but i mean for me the opportunity and blessing to be able to spend time with people i love is priceless so being able to, you know, work with my husband, being able to have our children close at hand so that they know what we do and and it's not some big mystery to them and that we're able to help them with their homework and that we have family dinners. And, you know, all of these things um, provide me with the feeling that I am very lucky and that is really... um, that, you know, that is, that is being really rich is, is having, having that, if that's what you want. I mean, it does not mean that everybody wants that different people want different things, but for me, it's being able to spend time with family and honor family and honor your heritage and honor, you know, the future, make sure that you are in a, you know, teaching your children the right, you know the right way. I mean, I have my own idea. It, but <laughs> sure, I, we I all everybody do. has their own right, I mean, their own right way. But, but just to be able to do that, um, and have the time to do that is yeah, it's, it's wonderful.
1: No, I think that's, a, I think that's great. And, you know, I think we're really fortunate to live in a time when it's a lot easier. And I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because, um, I want to pay, pay right. respect to the past and, and, and the future, but, I think it's a lot easier today to find ways to utilize whatever your skills are and find an audience. You know, because of the internet, because travel is mm-hmm. is so much easier. I just think it's a lot easier for an right. individual or a family to take what they're good at and what they know and actually utilize that and and live off of it and create a lifestyle that is, is suitable for what they want to achieve. And I think that was a lot harder. Mm-hmm before you know all these right. things you did to create koval you had to learn so much you probably would have had a hard time had you not had the internet and a lot of other resources that didn't exist you know 50 years ago mm-hmm. so I just you know I, right. I it's just it's a time where information is readily available sometimes it's bad information
0: right so, right. so you've got to <laughs> learn to
1: filter filter that out but but the information's out there and if you find reliable sources, We live in a period where you can take advantage of that and create a life that that would have been very difficult uh to do not all that long ago and that's something i'm trying to kind of instill i want to instill in my family and i've got a young daughter and i want her to understand like we you are so lucky you live in a world that like realistically is your oyster like you can do whatever you want you can learn what you want and it's not only can you; it's really fairly simple oh. <laughs> compared to um, what it was not too too long ago.
0: That's so true, and you know, in in this whole experience, I, you know, I don't take anything for granted. I mean, I I recall when I was uh, at the Capitol in Illinois, in Springfield, and I was there to meet with my senator before there was a hearing on my bill and I remember walking through the corridors and, and seeing you know where Lincoln and Douglas were you know arguing and debating and all of these things that was really uh, amazing that I'm I was able to do that and get laws changed as a woman you know in my country for a business that I own yeah you know that is not, you know, I don't take it for granted. And, and you know, while there are a lot of things that we need to do in this country to, you know, move it forward and, you know, we're always, uh, you know, trying to make things better as we should, you know, there's always room for improvement everywhere. And there are, I, I will say, you know, when you take a step back and you think about, you know, just that and how amazing that is, given the situation for women in many countries around the world today, not, we're not talking hundreds of years ago. We're talking right now. Mm -hmm. It's really uh, heartening. And, and I, and I, you know, don't take any of these, you know, rights or privileges for granted. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's been an amazing experience all along.
1: I have a 10 and a half month old daughter, and I just love hearing you say that. (laughs)
0: Yes. I mean, it's, it's been great, you know, and a lot of people say, Oh, how is it, you know, doing this in in a men's industry, uh, or male dominated industry, I would say, you know, there are women throughout this industry that I have come across, whether it's in the United States, or in China, or everywhere. And and, you know, women have been in this industry from the very beginning. I mean, the first uh, still was created by a woman, you know, in ancient Egypt. So, you know, it's we've been here all along, which I think is nice. But I, I also think that, you know, that just being able to to run a business and to change laws and to do all of these things as a woman is is really uh, a wonderful improvement over the past in this country and and over what's possible in so many countries today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, with my investment firm, one of the big focal points, and I've got a lot of younger clients and not all, but a a good chunk of my client base is younger. And so I look at things a little bit differently because I think about where we're at today. I think about how much the world has changed since I was, you know, just in my short, short time here. And I think about the things I'm seeing happening every single day. I see so much positive momentum in so many areas. And oh, yeah. when I talk to people, I sometimes I'm like, are you paying attention? Because, yeah. you know, there's so much negativity, like, with with the yeah. words and, and all of these things. But when you actually look at some of the things happening, some of the technology, some of the innovation, some of the um, uh, progressive uh, freedoms that people are enjoying, that, that couldn't have been dreamt up not very long ago, I right. get so encouraged. And, you know, uh, that's why that's why I love investing because you're investing in people and you're investing in technology and the future in the future that's it yeah absolutely right so all right I've got one more question for you um, sure and I'll rephrase it a little bit differently than I normally do because I know you have children so knowing what you've learned mm-hmm. about business about money and going through your journey of of leaving leaving your job, starting Koval, growing Koval, using your, your resources to, to really make it happen, what is the number one thing you would tell your children about business and money?
0: About business and money. You know, it's in, in teaching my children, I think that there's something that I want them to think about regardless of what it is, and this would, you know, involve business and money too, is that they should treat you know, all interactions as if it's a, you know, an I and a, and a thou kind of situation, not, not as if everything should be contractual, but more almost covenantal that, that you're in this as a a member of your family as a member of your community as a member of your society as a member of your country um, as a member of the world and in every single action that you take you could either be making the world a better place or a worse place And that one should be thinking about that in all of one's interactions whether they are involving money or a particular business transaction and really just having that in the back of one's mind that that you know it's it shouldn't just be you know this is what i get this is what you get it it should really be sort of more of an understanding of the humanity of all the situations that that we're in this situation together. And yes, I, I want to achieve this and this, you know, other person wants to achieve that. And how do we do this in a way that has some sort of moral fabric involved? Because I think that if it's just, uh, uh, if it's just trying to get things, um, or make money, there's not as much thought to how humanity plays into the equation. And I want my children to always be thinking about how to be the best human beings they can.
1: Well, I think that was incredibly well put. And I think I'm seeing some of that start to shine through, even in the corporate world. I pay so much attention watching the stock market and paying attention to what companies are doing. I'm really impressed and I'm, I'm given so much hope um, and encouragement from the fact that I'm seeing people and not not just consumers, but investors care a lot more about what companies are doing besides the bottom line. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, the bottom line is never going to not be a factor in what right. people are, are choosing as investments, but- That's not the only thing. And you're starting this this ESG investment movement where people are saying, you know what? Yes, I want to make money, but I don't want to do it um, on the backs of businesses I don't support or industries I don't support or people doing things in a way that I don't think is ethically right or morally right. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. important because when everyone starts to do that, the consumer starts to demand that and the investor starts to demand that, that's pressure on these companies, these leaders Mm -hmm. to say, hey, We've got to change because we used to be able to exist this way, but, but now we've got to take into these other factors or we're going to be punished. Right. So I'm seeing this, this happening and I'm really encouraged for the future. Um, and really hopeful that that trend continues and that we end up with a better world where it's not necessarily cutthroat, that it, that it can be collaborative and you can make money and spend time with your family. Right. And do these things all at the same time. It's not one or the other. You don't have to sacrifice. Your career for your family. You can have a career you want or a, or a company that you create and spend time with your family. And, and to me, that's, that's real freedom. Right. When you don't have to make that choice.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: What a soapbox.
0: Yeah, (laughs) no, but it's great. I mean, why not? I, I, you know, and I feel that interestingly enough, I mean, it takes people doing that and modeling some of these behaviors or, or, or goals um, for other people to think about it too i mean i can think at least um from my perspective as being a woman who's also a mother running a business you know i was nursing children at work i was not in some broom closet and in doing that you know other people are like wow this is a woman running a business and being a mom at the same time you know or i'll be talking to a distributor and i'll be with my kids and they'll be at they'll you know, as kids do say, mom, can I have a juice box or mom, can I have, I want a snack or, you know, and they'll hear that in the background and, and that's okay. You know, because you know what, they have kids too, you know, and they understand it and and it's all right. And uh, I, you know, I feel that, you know, women were allowed to enter into the workplace and were able to be very successful in it. Certainly my generation did so, but you know, the real, you know, the next phase it's sort of how I see it is is for women being allowed to be mothers Mm -hmm. and working, you know, and that's, that's really next level. I mean, we've seen it to certain degrees in different parts of the world. I mean, you have women members of parliament in Canada and in Australia, or was it maybe New Zealand? I don't remember where, having their babies with them while they were engaged in, you know, legislation and, and doing things. Um, You know, it's, it, that, that's just one side of it. But uh, I think that there are many sides of it, as you said. And, and you know, hopefully things will move forward and we'll have a lot more humanity in the workplace, whatever one does.
1: Well, I certainly commend you. I commend you and your family. I think Koval a really impressive product. And it's even more impressive when you understand the story a little bit and the fact that you all bootstrap that and put so much of your own um, time and energy and money and resources into it uh, when there are other ways that maybe would have been—I don't want to say easier, but um, certainly in some respects a little bit more simple. Oh, yeah. So you know, I commend you for taking that route and and choosing to to create a life for your family that you wanted instead of just kind of going uh, with the the route of least resistance there. So thank you so much for coming on. I, I love your product. I think you have a great story.
0: Thank you so much and cheers. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, cheers. I hope to get up to Chicago whenever this deep freeze um, ends. So (laughs) thanks for coming on. Um, It was wonderful. Yes. And uh, we appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. We we look forward to seeing you in Chicago.
1: (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to episode three of Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Sonnet Bernicker hart of Koval Distillery as much as I enjoyed drinking their really interesting whiskeys. Uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at james at if you have any feedback or suggestions or some topics you'd like me to cover. I want this show to be compelling, interesting, fun, so I am open to feedback and would love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe so you'll get notified next time we release an episode. And I can't wait to share some of the guests we have coming up. So until then, take care. Thanks.